You're listening to Business Extra coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm your host, Kelsey Warner. I'm joined today by Patrick Vanderloo, the regional president at Pfizer, where he oversees the Middle East, Russia, and Africa. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Kelsey. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be talking to you today in particular. The World Health Organization announced last week that COVID-19 no longer qualifies as a global emergency, which marked kind of a symbolic end to the pandemic. And Pfizer, of course, played a critical role, as we all know. The company is the biggest pharma company in the world by revenue, bolstered really by its COVID vaccine and an antiviral pill, which helped propel Pfizer to a record of more than $100 billion in revenue in 2022. Now, of course, you expect your revenue to decline in 2023 as we kind of transition out of this pandemic. And your CEO, Albert Borla, said he expects 2023 to be a transition year, um, particularly for COVID sales, of course. So I want to talk to you, start us off by talking about transitions, the theme of transitions and what role you're playing in Pfizer's transition year and what role this region that you oversee is playing in its transition. It's, it's an interesting question. It, it, you're right. It is a transition year, but this region in, in particular, I think, um, w- was a little bit of an, I don't want to say outlier when it comes to um, the way that the, the pandemic was managed. Um, obviously, um, when when you look globally, Pfizer um, did a lot of work with our community, our COVID-19 vaccine. Here in the region, when you look at MENA, in particular, Middle East and North Africa, a lot of the contracts that we had were what we call bilateral contracts, meaning between Pfizer and and specific governments. Um, But in the rest of the region, I'm also responsible for Africa. A lot of that work was done in collaboration with third parties like COVAX and and the World Health Organization. So um, transitioning out of, of the pandemic um, as such um, doesn't mean that um, all vaccinations for COVID should stop. The same way that you you look at flu and the way that in many countries uh, flu vaccinations are are common, Um, what we are now working on are combination vaccines for COVID and the flu because, I mean, you have to keep in mind there are still millions of people getting infected um, on on weekly and monthly basis. And while we are out of the immediate pandemic phase of this, the the, uh, health crisis side of things, um, doesn't mean that COVID is going anywhere anytime soon. So so that part of of the Pfizer portfolio will remain important and we will continue developments in in, 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 in that area. But I think what, what Albert had also alluded to is that we're very busy um, transitioning through in the sense that we were looking at new launches um, across the board in the six key therapeutic areas that Pfizer has, has defined. And in this region, when you look at it, and, and we'll talk about that, I think a little bit later, um, we're planning on um, a large amount of launches in these other therapeutic areas um, and refocusing on what we call the core of our business outside of the pandemic side of the business. Right. So you're moving away from the pandemic, even though people should continue to get vaccinated for COVID. Um, but looking at product launches, I saw the number was about 55 products in the year 2023. And mergers and acquisitions are going to become more of a focus as you kind of switch gears into a post-pandemic steady state. Can you talk a little bit about these product launches in terms of what will be most relevant for your markets? Look, as you saw during the pandemic at Pfizer, we um, 
the way that we put it is that we envision a future where disease doesn't win, but science does. And science will win was, a, was our credo in that sense. And we feel that every patient, regardless of where they live um, across the region, because we have some wealthy parts of the region and some less wealthy, so has access to these life-saving medicines. Now, when you look at it globally, and um, we, we very recently received FDA approval for our pneumococcal vaccine. Um, it's a conjugate vaccine for infants and children which offers parents really the ability to help protect children against 20 pneumococcal serotypes in circulation, which is really a breakthrough. Can you put that in plain English for me? <laughs> that was a little so, biocentric. So, well, pneumococcal, uh, pneumococcal vaccines have become commonplace in most countries across the world, both in the developed world as well as the developing world. Because pneumococcal disease is a major cause of infant illness and mortality. So there were in the past pneumococcal eight serotype vaccines. There were 10 vaccines. Then Pfizer introduced a 13 vaccine. So 13 different serotypes. Now we have a 20 different serotype vaccine, meaning that we're covered basically across the board when it comes to pneumococcal uh, potentials for disease. So this is a massive breakthrough that just received FDA approval. Um, and uh, another uh, recent approval um, is a new mode of action, nasal spray against migraines. I'm just putting two very different types of examples in there for you. Um, and, and that treatment really marks significant breakthrough for people with migraine who need freedom from pain, but prefer alternative options to oral medications because uh, taking a pill is not always an option when, when you have a migraine. So if we move to our region, um, last year we managed uh, to support the lives of roughly 27 million patients across all the Middle East, Russia, and Africa countries outside of the COVID uh, pandemic products. And we will reach out to many more patients this year. We're on track, as you mentioned, to achieve in excess of 55 product launches in 2023 across a wide variety of therapeutic areas. So I mentioned vaccines, um, I mentioned migraines, so that's the internal medicine side of things, but we're also very active in oncology. Um, so cancer medicines, um, and we're also very active in the field of uh, inflammation and immunology. So we aim to bring these products to market with um, new patient access programs, which are especially relevant in this, in, in this part of the world, because like I said earlier, you have a wide discrepancy in affordability from country to country. So patient access programs are very important. We expand some of our current ones and we expand into new patient access programs to make sure that we do that. When we think about, okay, 55 is a big number for new product launches. Has the velocity of the number of drugs you're bringing to market quickened in the last decade? I think about the pandemic and how quickly a vaccine was brought to market. For all of the tragedy of the pandemic, there was, it was hopeful with how many companies were able to bring a vaccine to market and inoculate, you know, the world in in some fashion. And did the pandemic speed up drug discovery? Did it speed up R&D? Did it speed up your velocity? Or was it such an outlier that it, that's a separate story? No, it's very observant, um, that, that question. And it's, it's, it's very true because when you look at it, we, from start to finish, so from start to introduction of the COVID-19 vaccine, took us eight months. When you look at historic um, development of, of medicines, including vaccines, you're talking nine years, not nine months or eight months, right? So it accelerated dramatically. And to a large extent, that was also due to the 
collaborations between um, the biopharmaceutical um, organizations and governments um, to work in parallel as data became available, that regulatory bodies were looking at this data to make sure that things would move a lot faster. Now, is eight months, nine months the new standard? No, um, it, it, it won't be possible for um, pharmaceutical companies to work that fast because it literally was 24 hours a day across the entire organization for people to work and you would burn out organizations. And it wouldn't be possible for governments to do this for all the products that become available um, either. But I think a number of things have changed. So uh, the digitization of regulatory dossiers across the region um, has really increased and that will decrease the time to market for these types of medicines. Um, but also from a technological perspective, you see more and more um, with the help of artificial intelligence and other, um, other uh, uh, support mechanisms that these time to markets are, are shrinking. Where, like I say, in the past, uh, it was closer to nine, nine and a half years. I think now you're looking at six to seven years and, and companies are aiming together with governments to bring that, that number down. When I think about the legacy of the pandemic. The other thing that comes to mind is Abu Dhabi, at least very specifically, really changed its posture on how it thinks about life sciences and its role in just the pharmaceuticals industry writ large. I'm sure other wealthier nations have also changed their posture a bit as to the role they can play in drug discovery, drug development, clinical trials, R&D and the like. Pfizer's R&D is largely based in the U.S. and the U.K., but what role do countries like the UAE play in, in your innovation, in your development? Do they have a role to play? When you look at it, um, you know, governments have a collective responsibility and they employ many experts across a wide variety of fields. Um, innovation, however, takes a place like really across the ecosystem. So you can expect um, with, with biopharmaceutical industries, knowledge exchange, um, shared industry best practices, and strengthened local workforces. Um, through innovation, tech transfers, um, educational development and partnerships, what we try to do is elevate the, communi uh, the communities that we, we operate in and to build on the existing economic and health systems in the region. Now, um, where the development and research and development for Pfizer takes place. It actually takes place across the globe. It's not just the US and the UK. When you look at, for example, from a clinical trial perspective on, on our pandemic program, a large portion of the development of the vaccine was also done, for example, in South Africa, um, which is not uh, initially a, a, a country that you would think about when you think about these R&D. But we have on an ongoing basis, well over a dozen clinical trials running in in, in South Africa. So what we do... Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I'm just curious why South Africa was the place the place of preference for that development. If you develop a vaccine for the world, you need to research and develop it across the world as well. You cannot expect if you only develop the product um, in the US in a limited population setup um, for other governments to blindly um, accept clinical trial data um, on, on a product like that as well. So you need to test products globally, which is what we do. Um, when, you, when you think about just in the way that we execute novel programs after we identify specific gaps in countries, we look initially and primarily at partnership with governments because we cannot do that on our own. So what we try to do is set up an enabling environment for long-term sustainable investment because 
countries may want to do clinical trial work or other type of work with pharmaceutical industries very rapidly, build a factory, do certain things, but that's not always realistic. What we really aim at is to cultivate uh, and train a next generation workforce that's ready to work either in or with um, an innovative biopharmaceutical industry. So, so also the enhancement of local R&D capability and where appropriately the tech, trans, uh, tech transfer of technology and increased clinical uh, trial capabilities. And I think um, you know, a, a very good example of this, because you were asking specifically about Abu Dhabi um, or, or the UAE, um, I'll, I'll give an example of, uh, I can give a couple of examples, but I think when you look at, at R&D, we work with the Dubai um, Academic Health Corporation and Axtef Global to enhance care for patients with chronic illnesses. So what we do through independent grants is to use Dubai as a test bed to look um, at diabetes as a case example, to build capacity um, for enhanced care for these patients with chronic illnesses that that can get exported and scaled to enhance um, chronic illness care in low and low middle income countries in Asia Pacific, uh, Middle East and North Africa. So when you look at the patient side of things, that's something that we're really, really um, uh, active about. But when you look at specifically clinical trials and R&D to your, to your question as well. Um, so because one side is the patient side, we, we partner with um, the Department of Health, the DOH, um, to advance clinical research cap capability and capacity building. I should um, um, uh, combine the two. And, and to aim for knowledge sharing in the UAE. So we've developed a program aligned with the UAE's vision to promote uh, the science environment and the life sciences. And to help support Abu Dhabi's position as a hub for biopharma R&D activities. So we partner with academic institutions and other specialized partners from across the globe to help position UAE as an incubator for innovation in life sciences. So this program that we developed uh, together with the DOH started a little over a year ago, March 2022. Um, and it consists of a research training curriculum um, with experts from Pfizer, so from the biopharmaceutical industry, um, academic institutions, and other specialized partners to train um, 200 Abu Dhabi-based scientists to conduct clinical research needed to produce effective medicines. Now, this training was set based on, on research role and experience because the DOH's plan is to eventually have up to 500 specialized and qualified clinical researchers. They have an aim to get there by 2024. So a greater investment in research training now will bear ripple effects to various healthcare facilities and the quality of patient treatments in the region for the future. So building clinical research capability and capacity in Abu Dhabi, I think, demonstrates our long-term commitment to the region and, and the belief that investing in local healthcare ecosystems benefits patients, um, um, uh, healthcare providers, and, and the industry uh, as a whole. Is that a unique partnership or is that reflective of kind of the sorts of relationships you try to broker across the fairly vast region you cover? Yeah, 75 countries yeah. in the region. Um, so so it's, uh, it's, it's quite a large region. Um, you, you cannot, and, and, and that's what we tell governments as well, you cannot be everything for everyone um, every time. So you have to look at um, what makes most sense in each of the geographies. So 
when you look, um, for example, at, at some of the partnership programs that we um, that we have across the region, um, it, it, it varies greatly. Um, so we try to be a partner to governments and the healthcare practitioners, patients, other stakeholders. And so we work with governments to create the opportunities to advance these health objectives and broader socioeconomic goals. I'll give you an example in, in how differently we do that, for example, than in Egypt. Um, we recently signed a partnership with Haya Karima. I don't know if you're familiar with, with Haya Karima, but it's uh, the large government initiative in, in Egypt. Foundation um, started by... Uh, express orders of, of, of President Sisi, which aims to support underprivileged communities in rural areas. So they're building roads, they're building infrastructure, they're building hospitals, but they also need um, healthcare infrastructure. So where Pfizer can help really then is in that healthcare infrastructure thinking for these underserved communities. The example that I just gave you in, in Abu Dhabi is building R&D expertise um, to, to support the government's vision of becoming that biotech incubator in the region. Now, when you look at other areas in, in the region, the priorities may be different. They may be more on um, vaccine manufacturing site on the sub-Saharan African uh, uh, continent, right? We have a, a partnerships for the manufacturing of vaccines in South Africa for the sub-Saharan African continent, for example. So we adjust what we can do and where we can help realize government visions and goals, uh, depending on the specific needs of the countries that we operate in. For the Gulf specifically, what are the big public health challenges that need to be addressed in order for, you know, this region to kind of realize its its health ambitions, its health goals? I'm I'm not the government, um, so uh, from a from a public health perspective, you would have to ask um, as government specifically. Um, but I think uh, there there are a couple of things obviously that um, that that we can be active um, that we can be active in. Um, like I say, the government has certain collective responsibilities um, and has a lot of ambition. Um, I think that what we deal with and what we try to partner with with governments is to make sure that that those those objectives are aligned. I think there's a lot of ambition here in the region, especially in the in, in the Gulf, when it comes to clinical trials, when it comes to becoming manufacturing hubs, and uh, comes to being a distribution center for. Um, um, for the region. But like I said earlier, um, while people may be well and highly educated, um, that doesn't mean automatically that um, from a biopharmaceutical perspective, you're at the point where you can become the hub for R&D, the hub for manufacturing. So from a priority perspective here in the Gulf, it's really getting those skill sets up to the level um, where where they need to be so that those visions can become a reality. So that's really where we're focused here, especially in golf. Is it realistic, given what you have seen? I mean, you have an over 25-year career at Pfizer. You've had postings all over the world. When you look at the ambitions of this region, how, how do you rank them in it from a global perspective? Do they, do, they, do they have a shot? Well, there's the ambition and there's the means. And I think here in, in, in golf, you have both. Right. So there's the willingness also from the governments to invest. When you look, for example, at um, regulatory approvals, right, varies greatly um, across the globe. There are countries where it takes five, six years for a new medicine to get approved by a regulatory body. Um, what we're doing in sub-Saharan Africa now is, is working with the African Medicines Agency to see if there's some sort of regulatory harmonization that 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 can be implemented so that access to innovation comes faster also to these 
uh, to these countries. But when you look at Gulf and we look at Dubai uh, and, and Abu Dhabi in, in particular, regulatory approvals usually are in the top three globally. As soon as a product is approved in the US or in Europe, UAE works very quickly with innovative pharmaceutical companies to make sure that new technology is available here in the region as one of the first places in the world. They have medical tourism ambitions and they have those biopharmaceutical ambitions, like I said. So they're really trying to make this um, an, uh, an as attractive proposition also for the biopharmaceutical companies as possible. So like I said, they have the they have the means, they have the motivation, and they have a very clear plan on what they want to achieve. So I yes, I think it, to your point, it's not a pipe dream. It's 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 a realistic ambition here in in, in the region. I referenced a little bit ago. You're a serial expat. You're a lifelong kind of expat. You've traveled the world in your capacity as an executive for Pfizer. So my last question for you is just what advice do you have for professional expats in terms of just adapting to a new place and doing business? So there's a there's a couple of things. Um, uh, like when we were talking earlier, I've lived in Europe, North America, Asia, both developed and emerging, and now now I'm here. And I think um, first and foremost, an openness to a different way of working and not thinking that what you bring is automatically the best. I think if you if you if you get into these types of situations, then you keep a very open mindset and want to learn from the people that you're working with and respect for their culture. I think you can get everything done um, that you want to do. It may not always happen um, in the way that you would do it yourself, but I think the focus more on the what instead of the how um, will help you to be a successful expat here in the region. Patrick Vanderloo, so fun to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, Kelsey. Thank you. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you listen. All that's left is to thank you, our listeners, and our production team. See you next week.